Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am in dialogue with Dr. Alan Verskin. We will be discussing his new book, Diary of a Black Jewish Messiah, The 16th Century Journey of David Reubeni, published in Stanford by Stanford University Press, 2023. David, David Reubeni is a fascinating figure, and we are blessed to hear Alan's insights, wisdom, and perspective regarding David Reuveni in the course of our dialogue today. Alan, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. To begin, kindly tell us about yourself. What can you tell us about your academic journey and your upbringing and your journey that led you to this topic. Uh, great. So I normally begin the story of my academic journey with a course on Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed uh, that I took as an undergraduate at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I became fascinated with Maimonides' Guide of the Perplexed and not just um, uh, the guide, but Maimonides' world. I began studying Arabic. I began uh, being really interested in the Islamic context of Maimonides' writings. And uh, I also began to think about what the consequence of losing uh, that cultural environment was for Jews. What kind of trauma was in, what, what was it was involved in in losing Muslim Spain? Uh, Maimonides, of course, was exiled from uh, from Spain uh, by a dynasty called the Almohads, which uh, forcibly converted Jews. Uh, but of course, later. Uh, there was a much larger exile of Jews from uh, from Spain as a result of uh, the Christian conquest of of the territory, the event commonly known as the Reconquista. So, uh, from that interest in Maimonides, uh, I became became interested in Muslims and their response to uh, being driven from uh, from Spain. And I wrote my dissertation on that topic. And now, my work on David Ruveni 
is very much in the same in the same vein. Uh, Ruveni's main supporters are exiles from Muslim Spain or Portugal. Uh, some of them are conversos, people who have been forcibly converted to 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 Christianity. And uh, the reason Ruveni is able to operate is as a result of that trauma. So. Um, I guess uh, my work has been inspired by this early reading of, of Maimonides and an interest in that broader cultural environment. Can you outline what this book is about? Yes. So um, this book is a translation of a diary. And the diary was written by a man named David Ruvaini. What does Ruvaini mean? It means uh, a Reubenite, a, a man from the ancient Israelite tribe of, of Reuben. Now we know that David Ruvaini actually existed. Uh, that is, we have lots and lots of sources from Europe that mention this man. Uh, he shows up in Italy in 1524, and there he approaches both Jews and Christians with the same fantastic story. And this is what he tells them. He tells them that he is from a Jewish kingdom that is located in Arabia near Mecca. And he claims that his brother is a Jewish king there and that he himself is a general of a vast Jewish army, um, an army composed of these hardy Jewish desert warriors. And Ruveni kind of looks the part. Uh, the way we, the, the view we have of him from outside sources, um, he's described as uh, being covered in battle scarred battle scars, interestingly, having black skin. And he's also described as speaking Hebrew as his native language. Uh, so he's described by all of these sources as being clearly foreign in experience, in, in appearance, clearly very martial, and uh, clearly Jewish. So Ruveni gets to Europe, and his main goal there is to meet with European rulers. Uh, he starts with the Pope, uh, and after that, he succeeds in meeting the King of Portugal, the King of France, and eventually the Holy Roman Emperor. And he tells all of these rulers that uh, he's come to ask a favor of them, as well as to offer his service in a project that's really dear to their hearts. What he wants is weapons and warships. And he, what he offers to them is to have his army use these weapons and warships to help them launch a, a, a war and beat the Muslims once and for all. That's, the, that's what he offers to them in exchange for these weapons. And to understand why this offer was so appealing to European rulers, we have to remember that Ruveni places his kingdom uh, somewhere in Arabia, near to the Red Sea. And the Red Sea is a very strategically important route for Europeans to the east, especially for a naval empire like the Portuguese, where in this period they have a colony in, uh, in India. They want to be able to ship goods from India back to Europe. And the Red Sea is one very important uh, uh, way, uh, route for doing, for doing so. Uh, but at the time, uh, it's really more or less controlled by the Ottoman navy. So the idea that there's this Jewish kingdom that can help Christians gain control over this as this 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 region is very attractive. Uh, we should also remember that Ruveni lo locates his kingdom quite close to Mecca, 
And uh, the Christian world at this point is rife with uh, apocalyptic wishes for uh, the Christian conquest of Mecca. Uh, it's kind of seen as a, as a revenge for the Muslim conquest of Constantinople, uh, not even a century earlier. And uh, because Ruveni is located in, in reasonably close proximity to Mecca, that's what he claims to, to be, where he claims to be located, uh, Christian rulers uh, think, hey, well, maybe we can make those apocalyptic uh, dreams a reality. Uh, so that's why Christian rulers see Ruveni as a potential ally in a variety of different uh, Christian conquests. As for the Jews, Ruveni approaches uh, a lot of them, and they're also aware of his requests for weapons and warships from Christian rulers. But Jews see Ruveni's goals uh, a little differently. Uh, they don't see Ruveni as a supporter of Christian Europe. They think that once Ruveni uh, and, and his army uh, together with the Christians, uh, together with the Christians, engage in battle with the Muslims, the Muslims will win, and Christians will decisively lose. And what will this allow Jews to do? Uh, it will allow the Jews of Southern and Western Europe, who've been really persecuted by Christians through forced conversions, uh, through expulsions, who've been so suffering so much at the hands of these Christians, it'll allow them to return to the Holy Land and perhaps even usher in a messianic era. Uh, so for Jews, uh, Ruveni is generally not seen as an ally of the Christians. He's seen as an ally of the Muslims who are regarded more favorably than the Christians in this period. Um, now, I think the amazing thing about Ruveni's story is despite the fact that it seems so fantastical, uh, he's able to peddle this really odd message and to get audiences uh, with some of the most powerful people in Europe and certainly some of the most influential Jews of the, of, of the period. And he does this despite the fact that he is virtually penniless. And he comes to Venice, first to Venice, only with uh, some letters from a council of Jews that nobody has ever heard of. Those are his, his recommenders. So his, those are his letters of recommendation. And this council of Jews exists in a Jewish kingdom nobody has ever heard of, and which historians believe never, never existed. Um, and despite all of these disadvantages, uh, Ruveni finds that his message resonates. He finds supporters, both Jewish and Christian. Uh, he writes a diary which describes his whole mission. And uh, his time in Europe is actually the second half of his mission that the diary uh, describes. Before this, he claims he's traveled throughout Africa and the Middle East trying to drum up support for his, for his mission there. Uh, so that's the kind of the what what Ruveni is trying to do in his diary and uh, an event that's not told in his diary, but is very important uh, for us to know about Ruveni. Uh, he doesn't succeed. Uh, eventually, he runs uh, afoul of a Christian ruler, uh, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Charles V does not believe his stories. He uh, feels that Ruveni is uh, um is, is a dangerous figure. He turns Ruveni over to the Inquisition, and eventually, as a result of these events, in 1538, Ruveni is burnt at the stake. And that's the end of, 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 of Ruveni's uh, story. What, are, what inspired you to engage in this translation project? What message do you hope to convey to readers by bringing Ruveni's diary 
into common consciousness. Uh, so this whole project was really um, a result of student questions, questions, uh, questions by students um, as a result of, of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, my students have been asking me more and more about the role of race in Jewish history and uh, the role of Black Jews in Jewish history. So I started doing research and I came across Ruveni in the context of that research and read his diary for the first time. And the question that I was asking myself was, uh, here's a man who's described by all of his contemporaries, by his friends, by his enemies, by Jews, by Christians as having black skin. And the question I asked is, why didn't that work against him? Why was he able to achieve this measure of success to hobnob with the greats of, of, of European society of his day? Uh, why did Ruveni gain so much trust? Why did people put so much hope in him when he looked so different from, uh, from them? And in answering that question, I learned a lot about uh, what a very strange time the early 1500s was for people in the Mediterranean and, and probably all over all over the world as well. Uh, it was a time when people were both terrified of foreigners, but also in some surprising ways, uh, they were very receptive to them in ways as a uh, that I really wouldn't have guessed as a 21st century person. So that's how I got into this uh, uh, Ruveni, this project of learning about Ruveni and, and his diary. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? So my end goal uh, is to get more people involved in studying and enjoying reading about Jewish history. <laughs> And the way I've often got interested in uh, in topics in Jewish history is through tales of the weird and wonderful. And the figure of Ruveni is 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 definitely is definitely that. But it's not just a strange story. Ruveni also provides a really interesting vantage point to think about how all of the moving parts at the beginning of early modernity fit together. Uh, so Ruveni lives in this really dramatic time. It's the beginning of the modern era. Apocalyptic beliefs are widespread. People genuinely think on a, on a very large scale that the world is hurtling into this epic war, which is going to end history as we know it. Uh, I think this is a, an interesting point to make that uh, we think of the early modern period as the beginning of a new era of history. Most people at the time thought that they were living in the end times, that it was history was about to end. Uh, so he's living in this, Ruveni is living in this era of momentous political events uh, within a century of him, him appearing, Muslim Spain and Christian Byzantium uh, both end. Uh, we have the Spanish Inquisition. We have forced conversions of Jews and Muslims. A whole new continent is discovered together with uh, very, uh, uh, very sophisticated civilizations like those of the Aztecs. Uh, there are major earthquakes. There's bubonic plague. There are pitched battles that have disastrous impacts on several major uh, European cities. And uh, all of these events that you normally find in world history textbooks in separate chapters are interconnected and tied together in Ruveni's life. Um, so to learn about Ruveni is uh, really to get a view on world history that is really hard to find elsewhere. 
And uh, that's kind of what I would like uh, users to get out of our discussion and, and, and also more broadly out of the book. What was the state of the Ottoman Empire's relationship with Christian Europe in David Rovini's time? So the Ottomans are at the absolute height of their power uh, uh, in the in the fifteen in the fifteen twenties when Ruveni comes onto the onto onto the scene. Uh, there's one scholar who says that if you're if you're a betting man, you were going to bet on uh, who would win in an all-out war between the Ottomans and and various Christian uh, Christian powers. It would unquestionably be the be, be the Ottomans. Um, and um, I think uh, one of the major events that a lot of people still have in mind is that uh, less than a century before Ruveni arrives, the Byzantine Empire that had ru- ruled for over a millennium uh, was ended by the, by, by, by the Ottomans. The Ottomans are making gains in all kinds of areas. Uh, they conquer a very large area of, of the Middle East, of the Arab Middle East, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and so on. Uh, they're also very active in, in Europe. And that in the 16th century they lay siege to, uh, to 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 Vienna. So that's the extent of 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 Ottoman power, and uh, uh, Christian rulers really feel this danger. There's uh, there's a kind of a, a a terror of Turks that 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 um, goes through uh, these European courts. And one really revealing document, I think, in this respect, is uh, Christopher Columbus's account of how he pitched his voyage of discovery uh, to Ferdinand and Isabella. Uh, He doesn't uh, pitch this as some kind of uh, scientific enterprise or anything like that. What he says is it's a quest uh, to discover the Grand Khan. Who is the Grand Khan? Rumors at the time it circulated that in India, there was a powerful non-Christian ruler who was uh, rumored to favor Christians over Muslims, and that he could be counted on as an ally uh, for the Christians against this ascendant Ottoman Ottoman power. Um, And uh, uh, so, at least according to Christopher Columbus, he was able to persuade Ferdinand and Isabella that his enterprise was worthwhile uh, because it was ultimately for the purpose of uh, of protecting them uh, or getting one, uh, getting the upper hand uh, over the over, over the over the Ottomans. Uh, so there's there's a, there's there's an immense uh, uh, fear that Christians feel of the of, of the Ottoman Empire at this period. They think that there could easily be a confrontation in which they would be the losers. However, I don't want to give the impression uh, that uh, relations in this period between uh, Christian Europeans and Ottomans were always ones of military uh, confrontation. Uh, they weren't. We also have really rich cultural contacts that are going on in this period even as people are worried about the, the, this this aspect of, of of military confrontation, but I do want to say that for the people that the, the people that Ruveni has success with, uh, they're generally people who fear this upcoming uh, conflict between Christian Europe and the Ottoman Empire. How do Jews fit into this landscape of Christian-Muslim conflict? Okay, 
So let me start with um, Jews of the Muslim Mediterranean first, uh, because their experience is actually quite different from uh, Jews in the Christian Mediterranean. So in the 16th century, uh, Jews in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Minor, and so on, are in a relatively good place in terms of uh, of tolerance for their for, for, for their communities. Um, they're in a good place compared to their co-religionists in Christian countries, and they're probably in a good place even compared to their ancestors living in those same uh, Muslim countries who at times did experience persecution. And this is important for Ruveni's story uh, because the first Jews that Ruveni preaches to are from the Muslim world. And they have absolutely no interest in anything that Ruveni has to offer. They're in a fairly stable position. They have a lot to lose if there's trouble. Jews in the Ottoman world tend to view their rulers quite positively. Uh, And eventually, in the 16th century, the Ottoman Empire does become the new home for most Jews who have been expelled from uh, Spain and Portugal. So Jews doing well in Ottoman lands uh, don't have uh, much time for uh, David Ruveni's dangerous schemes. Uh, That doesn't mean that uh, it was easy to be a Jew in the Ottoman Empire. And uh, in fact, Ruveni, who is out and proud as a Jew in uh, in Christian Europe, even in places where Judaism is illegal, like uh, Portugal and, and Spain, uh, he's out and proud as a Jew there. Uh, in the Ottoman Empire, he travels as a Muslim. Um, but that being said, in Ruveni's diary, the impressions that he gives of Islam and Muslims are generally positive. Ruveni is not happy, however, with the Jews who live in the Muslim world. Uh, They don't want his grand plans, and Ruveni describes this as cowardly. What it simply means, in my eyes, is that they're risk-averse. By contrast, uh, Ruveni describes the Jews and the conversos of Italy and Spain and Portugal in absolutely glowing terms. He says they're brave. Uh, and I think this should be read that they're receptive to his extremely risky ideas uh, because they are much, much more desperate than the Jews of Muslim lands. Why are they so desperate? Because over a period of several centuries, Jews have been expelled from many uh, kingdoms in Europe, from England, from France, from Spain, from Portugal. There's a long series of of expulsions and persecutions of Jews. And in Ruveni's time, Charles V, who is the Holy Roman Emperor, and also the grandson of Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, who expelled uh, the Jews in 1492, uh, there's a feeling uh, that Charles V is eyeing similar policies for his territories. And this is a very dangerous situation for Jews. Charles V has an absolutely enormous empire that uh, uh, is on both sides of of the Atlantic. Uh, People say his his empire is the first empire on which the sun never sets because of his territories in the new world and the old world. And Jews are worried that he's going to continue the anti-Jewish policies of his grandparents. Uh, So there is a feeling of fear. There's a feeling among Jews of Christian Europe that they're being hemmed in. 
so what else is going on with 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 the Jews? There are a lot of Jews who are uh, expelled from Spain and and Portugal in 1492 and then in 1497. And the larger story of Sephardic history is a very positive one, that most of those Jews find their homes in, in, the, in the Ottoman Empire. And that story is, is true. But that process takes decades and decades uh, to happen. And Jewish refugees uh, run into a lot of trouble along the way. They're, uh, they're captured as slaves. Um, their, 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 their property is taken away from them. They can't find cities willing to take, willing to take them in. And in Ruveni's time, uh, uh, a big object of Jewish philanthropy is trying to facilitate the resettlement of those, of those Iberian Jews. Uh, and, and that causes a lot of tensions. Often when Iberian Jews move into an area, they sometimes outnumber the original population. So you can imagine the kind of tensions that might be generated. Also remember that there's a lot of warfare in Europe. That uh, and each time an area goes under the control of another ruler, there's a risk that policies towards the Jews will uh, will will change. Uh, so when Charles V invades parts of Italy, Jews are very very worried in this period. So what can I say about the about about Jewish life uh, in the in this period? It's more stable in the Ottoman Empire, where Jews are less receptive to Ruveni. Uh, there's a lot of heightened anxiety among Jews of Christian Europe, and they are much more receptive to the message that Ruveni is conveying. How are Africa and African identity interconnected with these events? So that's a great question. Um, so I mentioned earlier that Christian Europe felt that it was in need of allies against the Ottomans. Uh, Christopher Columbus had sought out the Grand Khan in, in, in India, and it headed westward. Another ally for which Christians searched was known as Prester John. And according to the myths, Prester John ruled this powerful Christian kingdom, which was located somewhere adjacent to the Muslim world. For a long time, Christians imagined that this, this kingdom was located in India, but this changed in the 1400s, when Portuguese explorers headed to uh, headed to Africa, and heard reports that there was actually a real Christian kingdom located in what is now uh, Ethiopia. This piece of news that there was a Christian kingdom in Ethiopia uh, was not news to Africans, or I should add, Middle Easterners. But it felt like a big discovery for for Europeans of the time. And they immediately embraced the existence of this Christian kingdom as proof that the legend of Prester John was actually true. Uh, it was only, by the way, in 1520, uh, just four years before Ruveni's appearance, uh, that a Portuguese diplomat actually managed to make his way to this Christian kingdom. And uh, he conclusively identified its ruler, whose name was Dawit II, as Prester John. So um, Portuguese are very excited about this. They think that they've, when they discover this Ethiopian king, that they've discovered an ally for themselves against the Muslims, and moreover, an ally uh, who has access to the Red Sea, the strategic um, uh, naval passage. Jews were also impacted by these, by these legends of Prester John. And like Christians, Jews also had hopes of being saved by as yet undiscovered allies. 
in their case, it was the lost Israelite tribes. Uh, tribes like the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Dan, uh, who were exiled in 722 BCE from the land of Israel uh, and lost contact with their Israelite brethren who later became known, of course, as, as Jews. Now, since ancient times, Jews have developed multiple theories about where exactly all of these tribes had, had gone to. Uh, it was clearly someplace out of contact with the currently known Jewish world. And uh, Jews imagined the reunion between these lost tribes uh, and, and the Jews uh, as being part of uh, Messianic times. Now, the Messiah was thought to be a person for Jews who would bring political independence back to them. That meant that he had to be a fighter. So how is that going to happen? How is the Messiah going to be able to have messianic armies if most of the Jews of the world don't have military training? Uh, often they're banned from even owning weapons. Well, that's where all of these lost tribes fit in. Uh, cut off from the rest of the Jewish world in these remote places, uh, the legends had it that these ancient Israelites maintained uh, a warrior culture. Now, nobody knew where they were. But when the Portuguese discovered hitherto uh, unknown allies, Christian allies in Africa, this ignited hopes among Jews that perhaps the lost tribes were located located there, um, and uh, that 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 just as the uh, the Portuguese had discovered Chris, discovered Christian African warriors who had helped them, so too would Jews discover Jewish African uh, African warriors. Uh, so Jews at this point were hoping to find in Africa people who were like them, were their brother Israelites, but who were also not like them in the sense that uh, the Jews that they knew were oppressed, they were weak, they were not legally able to bear arms. Uh, but the lost tribes, uh, the lost tribes located in Africa would be strong, uh, would be martial. And it's in this context that Ruveni comes on the scene. Uh, he spoke Hebrew. He was religious, uh, but he couldn't be mistaken for a European Jew, and, and that was and that was really good uh, for them. Uh, so, at this point, uh, when Ruveni emerges and he's perceived as being a man with black skin, uh, that black skin, at least for some Jews, works in his favor. That it connects him with these ancient lost Israelite tribes, who they're counting on to ultimately save Israel. Where exactly did Rebbeni come from? So that's a very good question. And uh, ultimately, uh, we don't really know, and we will never know. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, Rebbeni was burned at the stake. And uh, so we'll never be able to have a DNA analysis of, of, of Rebbeni's body. But there've been two avenues of speculation. Uh, as to his his identity. Uh, he says that he was from a Jewish kingdom in the middle of Arabia. I am 100% sure that there were there was no Jewish uh, kingdom there, let alone a, a Jewish community. Uh, there was a Jewish community in southern Arabia, that is in, in, in Yemen, and uh, there were contacts between uh, 
Yemeni Jews and uh, Jews in and 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 uh, and and Jews in East Africa and people in East Africa. Many of Ruvaini's contemporaries uh, say that he was black. Uh, some of them spe uh, uh, specify that he was black like a Kushite. A Kushite is a term in, in, in the Bible. It refers to a Nubian, but in the Middle Ages was, was, was used by Jews more generally to refer to sub-Saharan Africans. Uh, we also have uh, some Christians who say he's black like an Abyssinian. Um, so there are many Europeans, both Christian and Jewish, uh, who seem to have thought Ruveni was an African. Uh, that may not be the way uh, a modern person would identify him, but that's the that, that's the impression we get from the time. There's another way of trying to figure out uh, uh, where exactly Ruveni came from. And that's through an analysis of the Hebrew of his diary. And the thing about Hebrew is that uh, nobody uh, grows up speaking Hebrew. It's, it's very much an acquired language. And so people's mother tongues are reflected in the way that they that they that they write that they write Hebrew. Uh, and so people have tried to analyze the grammar of Ruveni's diary to uh, figure out what his uh, what his mother tongue actually actually was. The problem with it is that Ruveni's uh, Hebrew is so idiosyncratic, is is so anarchic uh, that scholars' guesses as to his mother tongue have been all over the board. We have scholars who claim that his mother tongue was a Slavic language. We have others saying that it had to have been Arabic. Some say that he was Yiddish speaking. Some say that he was a, a speaker of a Spanish dialect. Uh, so we really, uh, the, I think that once you have so many guesses that are all over the place, uh, uh, the value of this exercise in determining Ruveni's origin is diminished. The other part of this is that uh, although uh, Ruveni, no doubt, I mean, everyone agrees, had a, had, a, had, a, had a prominent role in the composition of the diary, uh, he may have got help from a secretary. And so the, idios, uh, the, so, so the uh, idiosyncrasies in the, in the Hebrew that we're seeing uh, may be a reflection of the language of the, of the, of the person or people who helped him write this, uh, write this down. Uh, so that's the state of, of uh of uh, of research, we don't really know where Ruveni came from. Uh, where do I stand on the issue? Uh, my very tentative inclination is to believe Ruveni's contemporaries who thought that he was of African origin. Uh, we do know, for example, that there are Ethiopian Jews. Uh, and I think one of the interesting things uh, is that some modern Ethiopian Jews have even claimed Ruveni as 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 one of their own. So that's one approach to uh, to trust the observations of people of the time who thought that he was from uh, from Africa. Can you tell us about David Ruveni's entourage? Who were his companions? Who were his translators and interlocutors? Who were his servants? Who were David Ruveni's opponents, and why were they hostile to him? Uh, so. Um, Ruveni has a wide variety of of people in his in 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 his in his entourage. When the diary begins, uh, he doesn't when when he's in when he's in um, when he's in the Middle East, 
he really has people who are willing to accompany him on the journey uh, because they're going there anyway. So his his first uh, uh, his first supporter is uh, a Jew from originally from Naples who finds himself in Egypt and wants to go back to Italy, and he comes along for the ride. Uh, once he uh, once he um, once he's in Italy, and he gets the patronage of uh, certain wealthy uh, wealthy Jews, uh, he begins to have servants, and those are paid for by some of the the Jewish banking families uh, of of Italy. And uh, a lot of the diary is about the antics of these servants. Uh, they are not generally upstanding members of society. They're being asked to go on a very dangerous mission. They're going from Italy to Portugal, which is a country in which the practice of Judaism is outlawed. Uh, so it's a very dangerous mission. Uh, they could be thrown in jail in, in, in Portugal. Uh, they could experience, experience wars. And that uh, attracts uh, people who have uh, limited ties to their communities, young, young, young men. And uh, a lot of these young men at the, act the parts. Uh, they break the law. They um, uh, and uh, they they fraternize with women. And Ruveni is uh, portrays himself as somebody who needs to bring order to these uh, uh, to these to these individuals. Uh, there are also enslaved people in in Ruveni's in in Ruveni's uh, entourage that uh, he. Uh, he he has this uh, that slavery is practiced in in in, in Europe, and uh, Ruveni uh, includes uh, uh, includes these enslaved people in his entourage too. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In terms of Ruveni's opponents, uh, these are people who uh, are very worried about... uh, the instability that he threatens to bring, that uh, Ruveni is playing with fire. Uh, his, act- his actions could very likely spark war between uh, Jews and, uh, and, and Christians. And there are there's a rabbi who writes a responsum, um, uh, and which, 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 which makes that very explicit. And he's very concerned that um, uh, that Ruveni is going to be make life intolerable for Jews of Christian Europe. So those are the kinds of individuals. Can you describe why some Italian Jews, like the Da Pisa family, embraced Ruveni? Yes. So the Da Pisa family is uh, the most important uh, Ruveni's most important uh, supporters in 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 Italy. And um, the interesting thing to bear in mind about them is that they're they're not insane. They are uh, people with good business sense. They've brought, they've, they've put together this immensely successful, uh, successful bank. They're very wealthy. Uh, they're, um, and uh, they're also Jews who care deeply about philanthropy. So Daniel de Pisa ends up being the, um, uh, being the de facto head 
of the Jews of, of Rome. And he represents them to the Pope and he drafts bylaws for the, for, for the, for the community. And he's very concerned with uh, all of these Jewish refugees who are uh, making their way uh, across the Mediterranean from Iberia, who they've been expelled by, 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 by Christians there. And um, Daniel de Pisa uh, spends a huge amount of his family's fortune uh, trying to ransom those who've been, who've, been, who've been sold into slavery and trying to uh, help them build, uh, build new, new, new lives. And I think that's one of the reasons that he's interested in in Ruvaini, that um, Ruvaini is saying that uh, the only thing that is going to save these Jews, that is going to help their resettlement, is uh, a powerful Jewish army bringing them to the Holy Land. And uh, these Jews need a place to go. This is a time where they haven't all of them haven't yet found homes in the in the in the in the Ottoman Empire. And I think Daniel de Pisa is interested in that aspect of 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 Ruveni as 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 being a solution to this condition of instability among the Jews of Christian Europe. Uh, the de Pisa family are also heavily into uh, into Kabbalah, and they're actively involved in apocalyptic uh, speculation. And uh, the tutor of the de Pisa family uh, is a man named Yochanan Alamano. And uh, Yochanan Alamano is this very learned Kabbalist. And uh, one of the things he does is he tries to uh, predict how the, the end times are going to go down. And to do that, he draws in Jewish texts. He tries to find hints in the Bible. But he also looks at geographical works. He looks at the works of Jewish travelers. Uh, he's aware. Uh, he he looks at how the political relations between Christians and uh, and the and the Ottoman Empire, and he tries to use all of that information to figure out how the apocalyptic battles are going to take place and where they're going to take place. Where exactly are these lost tribes who are going to fight those battles uh, going to come from? Uh, what flashpoints exactly uh, are going to cause this ultimate conflict between Christians and Muslims, which is going to come before uh, uh, the messianic the messianic era? Uh, so uh, the, the pieces, in a way, are prepared by, uh, by Yohanan Alamano, for a figure like Ruveni, who uh, who has this messianic aspect to his to to his mission, and is a representative of of these lost tribes that they've already been uh, been talking about. What kinds of relations did David Reubeni have with Gentile rulers such as the Pope, the King of Portugal, and the Holy Roman Emperor? Mm -hmm. So, um, Ruveni arrives in Italy with really nothing tangible uh, going for him. He has no money. He has no clothes. He has no direct con uh, con uh, uh, contacts. He's got his whole entourage at that point is this Jewish drifter who comes with him, uh, who's originally from Naples and had agreed to accompany him out of Egypt. Uh, he also, I should add, doesn't appear to know any European languages. He speaks Hebrew, which he alleges is his, is his first language. He also speaks Arabic. Uh, but despite having little going for him, he wants all of these Christian rulers to treat him as a diplomat, to treat him as a general, uh, as a nobleman, as, as a fellow ruler. 
Uh, and what he tells them is is this: he's asking for uh, for weapons and ships to uh, transport uh, to Arabia, to his kingdom in Arabia, and in exchange, he 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 promises these rulers that he is going to ally his kingdom uh, with Christendom. And this is a very attractive uh, offer to 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 rulers uh, like the king of Portugal, who have colonies in India. Uh, Ruveni's territory is close to the Red Sea. Uh, it's a useful route for transporting goods for India. The Ottomans control it. Ruveni, with his army, might be able to turn over that area to the uh, to to the Portuguese. The Portuguese had already tried a similar strategy with Dawit II of Ethiopia, who also had access to the Red Sea. They need an ally in that in the, in that in that region. Um, Ruveni. So Ruveni plays off those interests that rulers have in control over of, of the Red Sea. Uh, Ruveni is also aware that the whole Mediterranean world, whether you're talking Muslims, Christians, or Jews, are in the thrall of this apocalyptic or messianic expectation. Uh, everyone seems to believe that at any moment this apocalyptic battle might begin. Uh, and some cardinals in the circle of the Pope at this time are actually investigating Jewish Kabbalistic sources in a quest to find uh, out how these events are going to transpire. Uh, one example of those is Egidio di Viterbo, a cardinal who is uh, very steeped in the world of Kabbalah uh, precisely for that reason. Uh, and here, Ruveni uses his identity as a member of the Lost Tribes to really, to, to, to really good effect. Now, those are Ruveni's strategies. It's not clear that all the rulers uh, believed Ruveni. Um, but as long as they were, even if they didn't commit to weapons, as long as they were able to introduce him to other influential people, Ruveni was 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 okay with it. And I think that the the Pope's letter, reading the Pope's letter of recommendation for Ruveni, which we which we still have today, is informative in this respect. He says, and he writes it to the King of Portugal, introducing Ruveni to the King of Portugal. He says, "Here's this guy, David Ruveni." Uh, he says that he is from this Jewish kingdom in, in, in Arabia. And the Pope says, we can't really verify his, uh, his, his story. Uh, perhaps he is, perhaps he isn't, but he claims he's a sworn enemy of the, of the Muslims. And uh, this might be profitable for us. And he says, sometimes even an enemy of the Christians, like a Jew, uh, can be useful as an enemy of uh, as uh, as as an enemy of another enemy of the Christians, the the, the Muslims, and uh, the Pope thinks maybe they can place a small bet on Ruveni. That uh, the cost of these weapons and ships is not a big ask for uh, for a king like the King of Portugal, and perhaps this small bet uh, might pay off. At, at, at the at the very worst. Uh, uh, they've 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 lost the money on those on those ships and 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 weapons. Uh, so that in a way is Ruveni's strategy. He's he's uh, he's going to these rulers, and uh, he with a with a small with a small ask, and uh, with the potential of a very big payout. If it goes if it goes badly, they've made a small loss. Uh, if uh, it goes well, and he really does have this powerful Jewish kingdom in Arabia, uh, it might just be enough to tip the balance. For, uh, in, uh, uh, in favor of Christians over their enemies, the Ottomans. Can you comment on the depiction of conversos in David Ubeni's diary? Who were they? How does Ubeni depict them? What kinds of interactions did he have with them? Um, 
So the conversos are some of Ruveni's uh, most enthusiastic uh, supporters. And uh, the word converso refers to Jews who uh, were forcibly converted uh, to Christianity in uh, Iberia, so often under varying degrees of, 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 of compulsion. And uh, I think the essential thing to, uh, to bear in mind about conversos in general is that there is no uniformity in their religious beliefs or practices. Some of them are completely sincere Christians. They've converted and they've and 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 they've adopted that new identity. Uh, some of them uh, have contempt for Christianity and and practice their Judaism in 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 secret. And there is absolutely everything in in, in between. So you're looking at a very diverse group of 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 people. Many of these conversos, like I think a lot of other people in the Mediterranean think that they're living in apocalyptic times. They think that the that that that, that some kind of messianic event is at hand. Uh, but they have very diverse ideas about what that will uh what that will entail. Uh Ruveni comes across conversos mainly in Portugal, but also in Rome, where there's a small community, and uh in 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 Spain. Uh and in Portugal, uh, the community of conversos is one which has been converted en masse. In 1497, all of the Jews of Portugal are forcibly are, forci are forcibly converted. And uh, the feeling that scholars have is that uh, that, that leads a lot of them, uh, the fact that they experience that trauma is altogether as a community, uh, to hold onto their Jewish uh, identities uh, for longer and more and more intensely. And uh, Ruveni's experience is very much that. He looks at the Converso community in Portugal, and by and large, he says that this is a community of secret Jews, uh, and that by and large, this community of secret Jews uh, support his mission. Now, the very unfortunate aspect of, of, of Ruveni's interactions with, Port, uh, with, with, with Conversos in Portugal is that it draws their tenuous adherence to Christianity uh, to the attention of the authorities. And many scholars think that it's as a result of, of Ruveni's interactions with them uh, that there was a Christian backlash against the conversos that eventually brought the Inquisition to Portugal in 1536. Uh, so it's very possible that um, uh, that Ruveni's presence in Portugal and his interactions with the conversos uh, uh, led to a, a massive downturn in their in their position. Can you describe the circumstances surrounding the circumcision of Diogo Pires or Solomon Molcho? Yes. So Diogo Pires is one of the conversos that Ruveni met in um, in Portugal. Uh, he was a kind of a prodigy. Uh, he became uh, the equivalent of a Supreme Court judge in Portugal by the age of 20. Uh, and uh, while Ruveni is in, in Portugal, uh, Diogo Pires has a dream in which uh, uh, God demands that he circumcise himself and uh, he'd, be, he'd, be, he'd be circumcised and become Jewish. And uh, he approaches Ruveni and asks Ruveni to circumcise him. And Ruveni is terrified. He says that uh, the circumcision of such a prominent uh, member of Portuguese uh, society and his conversion to Judaism 
uh, is a very dangerous thing, uh, especially for Ruvani if he's associated with it. That uh, it puts in uh, Ruvani's entire mission to the Portuguese king in danger if Ruvani is seen as um, being on a mission to return the conversos to Judaism. So Ruvani refuses to circumcise uh, Pyrrhus. Uh, he tells him to flee as far as possible from uh, from Portugal and do what he has to do uh, do what he has to do there. Uh, but uh, Pyrrhus doesn't listen. He uh, leaves Ruvani. He circumcises himself and word gets out that this prominent uh, Supreme Court judge has uh, has become a Jew. Um, this causes tensions for Ruveni, and it's that's one of the factors why Ruveni's uh, negotiations with the Portuguese yeah. king uh, break down and Ruveni is ordered to leave uh, ordered, ordered to leave Portugal. So what happens to um, uh, to Pires afterwards? Uh, he rena he takes on a Jewish name, uh, Solomon Molcho, uh, a name uh, uh, supposed to evoke King uh, King King Solomon. He flees the country, and somehow he becomes deeply learned in 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 Kabbalah. Uh, he uh, his 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 great learning is. Is is widely appreciated. He reads. He writes uh, several Kabbalistic texts, uh, which continue to be uh, studied by 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 Kabbalists long after Pyrrhus's uh, death. Um, uh, eventually, uh, eventually, Ruveni and um, and uh, Sol- then Solomon Mo- and, and Solomon Malcho meet up in Venice in 1532. Uh, they decide uh, to. Uh, 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 to uh, unite their unite their missions, and uh, at this point, Solomon Malcho is uh, identifying himself as the Messiah Ben Joseph, uh, a, a Jewish messianic figure, and they go together to Charles V, and uh, Charles V uh, rejects the mission, and they're both turned over to the Inquisition, and uh, they are are both uh, ultimately burnt at the stake. Uh, that's. The end of the story for uh, for both of them, but uh, Solomon Molcho's name lives on in Kabbalistic circles. And uh, one notable uh, uh, thing to note uh, to, to, about him is that Joseph Caro, the famous rabbi who authored the Shulchan Aruch, expresses a wish in his diary that he too be able to martyr himself like Solomon, like Solomon Molcho. Uh, so Molcho becomes this very respected figure in certain rabbinic circles. How does David Reubeni's memoir and diary depict women? What is revealed about women's lives in the 16th century in this diary? Who were the most important women in David Reubeni's life? Um, so the diary is filled with references to women. And uh, this is actually very interesting. Ruveni stakes his reputation on being an ascetic. He's always fasting. He, 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 do- he doesn't uh, have sexual relations. Uh, he's almost monkish. Um, but monkishness is often associated with misogyny, this idea that uh, women are a source of corruption to good men. The interesting thing about Ruveni is that there is not no 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 such belief. He he has no such belief. Uh, the result is that he has very real relationships uh, with women, but they're non-sexual relationships. Uh, so one of the most important uh, women 
that Ruveni mentions is Benvenida Abarbanel. Uh, she is uh, uh, from a family that uh, had to flee Spain as a result of um, uh, the outlawing of Judaism in 1492. She made her way to Portugal, and eventually she settles in, in, in Naples. Uh, she's a successful businesswoman. She's a major Jewish philanthropist. And interestingly enough, she's a Jewish community leader that uh, she's the person who negotiates with the Christian authorities when the Jewish community is in trouble. When the Jews of Naples are threatened with expulsion, she is the one who negotiates on their behalf. So she's a politician, she's a philanthropist, she's a businesswoman, she's this very interesting figure. And she's a supporter of Ruveni. Ruveni says she gives him money several times, she provides him with flags that that, that allow him to... Uh, 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 give this impression that he is that 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 he is the general of an army, that he's from this powerful Jewish kingdom. Uh, so uh, Ruveni is able to cultivate this uh, this 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 relationship with 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 her. Ruveni also gets uh, a fair amount of advice from women, particularly from women within the De Pisa De Pisa family. Uh, Yechiel De Pisa's uh, mother, for example, uh, is somebody that Ruveni immensely respects for her for her wisdom, and uh, uh, Ruveni feels that uh, she has truly understood him, and also understood his weaknesses. Uh, Ruveni, she tells Ruveni that the only thing that is going to stop him achieving his mission is his anger, his bad temper. And uh, she gives Ruveni uh, this Bible. And in the front of the Bible, she has this whole inscription about how important it is uh, to keep one's anger in, in, in check. And Ruveni really um, uh, values that advice. And when later in the book, he gets in trouble because of his temper, he remembers her again. And uh, he, he talks about how, how wise she was and how he should have uh, paid more close attention to, to, to her advice. And there are also other people, uh, women, that Ruveni calls wise and has, has respect for. He mentions women who uh, know the Hebrew Bible well, who know Hebrew well. Um, and uh, um, uh, so, 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 so they come across in that story as well. In Italy, uh, Ruveni describes women giving hospitality, and I think for a contemporary audience, one of the uh, one of the things that stands out is part of hospitality in these elite Jewish households in Italy is women playing musical instruments, is dancing in front of their in front of their guests, even in these very pious Italian Jewish households. So Ruveni uh, note, notes 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 that too. Um, in addition to taking on um, uh, roles that 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 in this period are normally considered masculine. Ruveni also mentions uh, women running domestic households. Uh, so uh, he describes women as caregivers, as providers of medical care. When he becomes very very ill in Italy, it's uh, the women of the household who who tend to him and uh, nurse him till he, he he regains his he regains his health. Uh, so uh, a lot of women are mentioned in, in, in Ruveni's uh, diary. Uh, the one woman who Ruveni probably doesn't meet, although he may have met her when she was very young, uh, was Doña Gracia Nasi, uh, who becomes prominent after Ruveni's, uh, Ruveni's death. And um, uh, 
she is uh, is is um, a very wealthy businesswoman, a philanthropist. Uh, she's interested in. Uh, she tries to negotiate on behalf of the Jewish uh, community in political circles. Uh, when conversos are burnt at the stake in the port of Ancona, she tries to organize this Jewish boycott of the port of Ancona to protest their deaths. It very nearly succeeds. And she also uh, starts this, uh, uh, together with her, her nephew, Joseph Nasi, uh, starts this Jewish colony in Tiberias, in, in Palestine. And I often wonder whether uh, Ruveni was 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 an influence. This idea that uh, part of achieving uh, these messianic aims is not waiting for a messiah to come come around, but starting those political negotiations oneself. Uh, did Doña Gracia Nasi know Ruveni? We don't know, but we do know for a fact that her family was was very familiar with him uh, from Inquisition documents, and it seems that in some ways uh, she is uh, continuing. Uh, his messianic legacy. How does Rubeni's diary interpret or reinterpret the Bible? To what degree can his biblical allusions be seen as commentary on the specific version ver verses and stories alluded to? What do these biblical references reveal about David Rubeni's psychology and personality? What did do they reveal about ways of reading the Bible in the 16th century? Okay, so let me let me answer this question by uh, by giving an example from the uh, from the from the diary, and it's from the scene when Ruveni first gets an audience with the Pope, Pope Clement the Seventh, and Ruveni tells the Pope, and these are his are his words: "I want to visit you once every two days, because to see your face." is like seeing the face of God. Now, when you read it, uh, it sounds like Ruveni is just a suck up and you roll your eyes and you're a little frustrated with the text. But when you look at it as uh, not just a line that he gives this uh, seeing you is like seeing the face of God, but as a quotation of a biblical verse, there is much more to it that, that meets the eye. Uh, so this phrase, to see your face is like seeing the face of God, comes from a passage in Genesis. And it comes from a passage in which uh, Jacob returns to the land of Canaan, and he meets his brother Esau for the first time in years. And he's incredibly fearful that Esau is going to kill not just him, but his entire family. Uh, so Jacob sends his brother Esau one gift after another as a peace offering, and when they meet, uh, they kiss, and Esau says that he has no violent intentions towards Jacob, and he wants to live as a family again. Uh, he sa Esau says he has no need of Jacob's gifts. And Jacob then says, no, please, if I found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God, now that you have received me favorably. Um, so we have that line where, where Jacob says that to see Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. And Esau eventually uh, chooses to accept Jacob's gifts. Um, and Jacob never develops a real trust for, of him and chooses not to live with him again. But he's avoided that very uh, that potentially catastrophic uh, situation. So why does Ruveni uh, quote that verse when he is... Uh, uh, when he meets the Pope. In the Bible, 
Uh, Esau is known as Edom. And in later years, Jews refer to Romans and later Christians as Edomites, the descendants of, 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 of Esau. So Esau is the first Edomite, and the Pope is the head of the modern Edomites. Now, ancient and medieval Jewish writers uh, wrote about this verse ad nauseum. Uh, some of them said that the relationship between Edom and Israel is actually never one of actual friendship, that Edom nurses a hatred of Israel that erupts every so often. And uh, Jacob's flattery of Esau, uh, saying that his face is like the face of God, is therefore not sincere. Uh, it's an insincere, perhaps even, you might say, contemptuous piece of diplomacy. Now, why does Rubini echo this language with, 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 with the Pope? I think he wants his readers uh, to recognize the potential insincerity of this diplomacy with the Pope. He wants his readers to understand the menace overshadowing it, that he's doing what a diplomat needs to, needs to do. He needs to flatter the Pope in this way, but he's making clear with this biblical quotation that it's only flattery. And perhaps in comparing the Pope to Esau, uh, he's also comparing himself to Jacob, uh, the person who struggles with God and who struggles with men, uh, but in the end prevails. Uh, so that's an example of Ruveni employing this biblical uh, this biblical language, and he does that at a number of places in the in the diary to add to his meaning. Who were David Ruveni's Jewish opponents? Why were they hostile to him? Um, so um, Ruveni's uh, Jewish opponents were hostile to him because of the instability that he uh, that he potentially brought to their communities. So, uh, for example, in Egypt, he meets with Abraham de Castro, who is chief of the mint, uh, a very important Egyptian Jew who we know really did exist. And uh, Abraham de Castro regards himself as a guardian of, 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 the, of, the, of the Jews of Cairo. And he sees Ruveni as disturbing the peace, that, um, uh, that uh, precisely this kind of warmongering behavior is what is going to bring distrust between Jews and Muslims and fragment uh, the kind of uh, uh, alliance that they have uh, with one with one another. Uh, when he goes to when when Ruveni goes to 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 Italy, there are rabbis who feel the same. There are Jews like the De Pizas who feel that the situation of of Jews is so desperate that they need to take a gamble on Ruveni and uh, see whether he can improve the the situation. Uh, there are others who say the risks outweigh the benefits. Uh, so Azrael uh, ben Shlomo of Vienna is one such rabbi who does that. He writes this responsum and he describes with disgust how Jewish communities across Italy are being used by Ruveni as uh, his personal piggy bank. And he says, this has got to come to a stop. Uh, he says, Ruveni poses a... Uh, 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 a, a, a mortal danger to Jewish communities, and uh, he has to be excommunicated. What does this book teach us about apocalypticism and messianism in Jewish and Christian history? So I think the important corrective, I think, to the way modern people tend to think about apocalypticism 
and Messianism, uh, the corrective that this book offers, uh, uh, modern people think that uh, apocalypticism is about something insane. Uh, people indulge in it uh, when they don't really want to engage uh, with reality and the world and the world around them. Uh, people are apocalyptic when they want to retreat from mundane reality. But in Ruveni's world, uh, apocalypticism is directly connected uh, to real world observations and to concrete geopolitical events. People feel that they're living in momentous, in momentous times. Uh, the world as they know it has radically changed. Uh, we see the period as the beginning of the modern age. Uh, they, by and large, see it as the end of times. Um, people want to bring about peace, and they see the way of doing that as uniting the world under a single religion. But to get there is going to involve into, into is going to involve war. Um, and uh, so this apocalypticism plays into their political policy. The feeling that they're living in apocalyptic times animates the kinds of military decisions that they make. It also animates uh, this drive towards world exploration, which is happening at the time. It drives um, it, it, uh, the, the, the discovery of new allies in far off places are very much animated by this, this spirit of apocalypticism. Um, so I think that what Ruveni shows us is that hard-nosed, pragmatic people who have concrete uh, political aims uh, do engage in apocalypticism as a way of making sense of, of, of their world. That happens with Christians. Uh, that happens with, uh, with, with Jews. And when you read these apocalyptic texts uh, from the period, I'm always amazed to see how much science, how much geographical knowledge, uh, how much, how many political references there are in all of these texts. These the people who produce them are very often people who want to keep up to date um, uh, with events in a very serious way. As we bring our dialogue to a close, can you tell us about what you're working on next as your current project? What are you working on now? How have you been spending your time since this book has been completed? Uh, so this book is a translation of Ruveni's diary. And uh, I am still fascinated with the figure of Ruveni and the light that he can shed on the, uh, on the early modern world. And that's what I'm working on right now, a, a full biography of Ruveni, uh, which will draw together um, some of these uh, so some of these currents of history that that I've spoken about about today with you. So that's uh, so, so writing a monograph uh, on Ruveni is 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 what I'm occupied with at the moment. I wish you the very best. Uh, this book is really a gem and really a contribution. I can hardly thank you enough for the contribution you have made to us all through your sacrifice and conscientiousness in this project. Thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure and my honor. Thank you. To our listeners, I'm your host on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Dr. Alan Verskin. He is an associate professor of history at the University of Rhode Island. 
We have been discussing his new book, Diary of a Black Jewish Messiah, The 16th Century Journey of David Reubeni, published by Stanford University Press, 2023.